power, not pity, pity, pity. Power, 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 not pity, pity, pity. Power, power, not pity, pity. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Power, Not Pity, where we explore the lives of disabled people everywhere. We'll delve into all sorts of topics, from education to entertainment, even sex. And then we ask, what's your disabled power? I'm Brian Moore, and I've always wanted to explore the similarities and differences of experience between disabled people. Let's begin with Zainab Sahar. Zainab is a Cross Currents Research Fellow at Auburn Seminary. She proclaims on Twitter, embrace darkness and make me one with everything. Black, polyamorous, queer, Sufi witch, unfriendly fat, vegan, femme theologian, philosopher, and writer is how she describes herself. Like many visibly disabled people, Zainab uses an assistive device, cane, that makes her vulnerable to ableism. Ableism is systematic and societal oppression that excludes the experiences of disabled people and centers able-bodied people instead. I see that you have a cane. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could you tell me a little bit about your disability? So I've had back problems Mm -hmm. for about like five years. Mm -hmm. And they were only exacerbated by having um, foot surgery to remove arthritic spurs on both of my big toes. So I had both of my big toes shaved and then cut on the inside and reattached Mm -hmm. with like pins. After I had both of them done, I realized I had lost a lot of equilibrium okay. that I had built up from like being a dancer as a child and like uh-huh. being super active and just like I couldn't stand to be on my feet for more than 10 minutes. She goes on to explain how she was mistreated by a health professional, of course. Unfortunately, this type of narrative is all too common. I mean, I can't count the number of times this has happened to me over the past three and a half years I've been diagnosed with MS. Health professionals can really forget that you are there seeking care. And let's not forget that race and gender also play a major role in the treatment you receive. It was because nobody told me, like, when you get foot surgery and you have, like, pins put in your feet, your feet are prone to inflammation. Hmm. And I was just like, well, thanks for that lack of information there. I really appreciate this. You know, I really enjoyed watching my feet swell and just not knowing what was going on, like thinking it was me the entire time. Yeah. So I finally found a doctor at like Howard Brown, which is kind of like the Callan Lord Mm -hmm. of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And she was just like, oh, the reason why you can't do yoga anymore above me on the fact that your feet are no longer flexible is that you get inflammation in your feet. And I was uh, just like, well, thanks Wow. for telling me this. And I had gone through the process twice with the same doctor. Mm-hmm. And she was like, oh, you'll just be back to normal. And I'm like, this is not normal for yeah. me anyhow. <laughs> like, I can't walk anymore. Uh, Zainab's explanation proves that the long road to diagnosis is what a lot of people have to face. Although I found out about my diagnosis quickly, many others are not so lucky. Fatphobia is another problem Zainab has had to deal with, 
She found that doctors and other health professionals mistreat and disrespect fat people. They even question her strength, y'all. I had a physical therapist who just couldn't handle the fact that, like, I'm fat and there are parts of my body that are strong at the same time. Like, I have really strong legs, and I'm like, no shit, I have strong legs. I walk everywhere. Like, I don't, I don't drive, <laughs> you know? And I used to be able to ride my tricycle before it just became too much pull on my lower back. You know, my insurance company is like, oh, wait, if we wait long enough, we might not have to pay for this. So we're just going to hold it out. You know, good luck. Godspeed. Um, but in the meantime, this isn't going to be a thing. I've always wanted power, not pity, to give people a peek into the thoughts and lives of disabled people. About 56.7 million people in the U.S. are considered to be disabled, yet our voices are rarely understood. I decided to name this podcast Power Not Pity to enable conversations that we don't usually experience and the lives that go unnoticed. In this first episode, Is God Inaccessible? It's all about uncovering the relationship between religion and a disabled follower. What she has to say is truly revelatory. I know you're a theologian and I just was wondering, how does theology relate to disability for you? So that's a really interesting question. So like in the academy, right, yeah. there's not a whole lot of work being done around like the intersections of like theology and disability studies. Mm -hmm. And the stuff that is being done is primarily around like Christianity. So looking at like how Jesus is reflected in the gospel tradition might be used to better understand disability that's not a conversation that I'm a part of because I'm not a Christian right yeah. um, when it comes to like Islam and like Muslim theology um, Islam is a very law-based religion so nothing really gets done unless people have seriously thought through like does this violate law you know um, so you're not really going to see like can find you could like do an interpretation and thinking about like, well, what if the Prophet Muhammad had a disability or something like that? But that also dovetails into a level of like anthropomorphism that Muslims don't believe in. So, you know, that's, that's a really sticky subject in and of itself. Ultimately, the way that theology and disability intersect for me is like the work that I do for like queer faith-based organizing because a lot of a lot of mainstream and also queer faith spaces are super inaccessible, right? Like I used to before like my health just went completely to the toilet. I used to do a lot of interfaith engagement conferences overseas in Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe is not accessible on a whole lot of levels. Um, so like for example you have these really tiny showers and people pride themselves on being like we're eco-friendly and we're not fat so therefore like we don't use all this water and I'm looking around the street and I'm like I don't know about you but last time I checked she wasn't exactly a size zero and neither was that dude over there and neither was that dude over there. so I'm just like I don't know what you what you all are seeing but like this is not what I'm seeing right and there's not even a thought process of public spaces 
being accessible. You know, like the last time I was in Berlin for the Muslim Jewish conference, ironically, we were being housed at a retirement home that also shared space with a center for people with very severe physical disabilities, right? And it was such a contrast because we stayed in the retirement home part of it, and I was just sitting here thinking, like, unless you are a super, like, able-bodied or skinny senior, I just don't know how this works. Like, maybe they have rooms hidden away that are wheelchair accessible, and that was just not, not even a thought process of public spaces being accessible. So I've really had to, like, shift in how I do things and how I organize because like if you want me to stay in a place where I have to walk up five flights of stairs to get somewhere to get to my bedroom like that's just not going to happen. Zainab explains that inaccessible mosques are a factor in the creation of queer interfaith spaces. So the way that it intersects for me is like when I do queer faith organizing in Chicago particularly with things like Masjid al-Rabia, which is like a LGBT-affirming and like woman-centered space, a lot of the conversation that we had is that like a lot of mosques in general are not disability accessible, especially when they segregate by gender. Yeah. So you'll have like the men's section, which is like maybe 90% of this table, right? Yeah. And then you'll have the women's section, which is like the other 10%. Yeah. And, right, like, it becomes a rat race as to who gets the accessible seating within that 10%. And typically it's older people because, like, people conceptualize who needs that space the most, right? So if you have an invisible disability or if you have, like, mobility issues and you're younger, forget about it. Um, So that was a huge consideration for us in putting that space together. Thank you so much for that, um, that breakdown. <laughs> um, so I was wondering if you could tell us more about your queer organizing and how that relates to disability for you. The typically within like queer organizing spaces, you don't see too many Muslims in general and then you don't see too many Muslims with disabilities who are like visible, right? So when I walk into a space, people are just like, oh, wait, (laughs) that's different. You know, like maybe you have some kind of magical perspective. And I'm just like, sometimes I do, (laughs) sometimes I don't. (laughs) You know, like sometimes I'm just here um, to be here and figure out like what is going on. Other times it is to be more active and like, planning things or like being a part of coalitions um like I get offers to be on a lot of different things in Chicago I have to ultimately turn them down because it's just like it intersects in the weird way of like who shows up to those spaces and I think at least in Chicago overwhelmingly There's an understanding that, like, accessibility is important, but I don't think people conceptually know how to make that happen. Ignorance about what access looks like is a common problem that many disabled people face today. This is particularly interesting 
because Zainab criticizes queer spaces, which are typically politically inclined towards breaking down all of the isms that complicate our societal experiences. But she finds that they can be just as inaccessible. And like, for example, I wanted to go to the Chicago Dyke March house party because they host a house party every year to like raise money. But it was up like flights of stairs. And someone who used a wheelchair posted on the Facebook event like, so what's the deal with the stairs? Like, what are people supposed to do? And someone was like, well, we could carry you up the stairs. And I was just like, in my head, I was just like, well, what does that person do when they're up there? Are you gonna really carry, are you gonna carry them around the entire party? (laughs) Like, are you going to like physically hoist their like motor chair up the stairs with them and then bring it back down when they want to? And they said, they responded like, that's a really terrible idea. And then also, And in my head, I was like, I get it, you know? House parties are romanticized, and queer culture is being, like, alternative and radical and cute, but, like, there are houses that are one story to the ground, you know? The fact that you keep having it in this house party that's something out of, like, a 90s movie is not really necessary. Like, if queerness is all about, like, subverting norms and boundaries and common expectations I don't see why you have to have it in a house per se have it in a alternative space that is actually accessible have it in a field for fuck's sake like I, I just I, to me it just doesn't make sense that like there's such a profuse limited thinking as to how spaces could come together and actually be accessible and instead it's just like this hardcore holding on to like we've done it this way and like this is what works and then also like this is what's available and I'm like that's cool you know if you're using your own house for example that's also something to think about too you know that you live somewhere that is inaccessible inaccessible to people you know like I'm aware of the fact that I live on the south side my house is far from people and that there's no elevator so if I ever like when I host events for like folks I have to be upfront about that you know but I yeah so it's interesting in that respect because it's one of those things of like I'm sure this happens in New York City too right people will post events for like queer things and folks will be like if you have an accessibility need just let us know and it's just kind of like wouldn't have been easier to like think this out as like some kind of forethought ahead of time before we get to the point of like the party already happening okay another question i have um is like what do you think about what disabled people are and what they look like and how they're portrayed in the media specifically like theological media oi um theological media oh my god so no there is like there is there's distinct messaging Mm -hmm. around like what it means to have a disability within certain religious spaces right so like let's say you believe in like pentecostal christianity and there's this concept of like laying hands on people to like heal people I mean, that can be great from a psychological standpoint if that does something for a person. 
But then it also becomes this weird, ingrained, ableist expectation of, like, if this doesn't work for you, then there's something wrong with you as a person, when in reality, like, there's an inherent limitation to, like, you know, what embodied prayer can actually do, and then also why do people inherently expect that embodied prayer has a curative aspect to it, you know? Like, you'll never see, like, TV pimp preachers, for example, laying hands on, like, stairs so that they can magically become, like, a ring, you know? Or praying for more accessibility, you know? Or praying for the money to have, like, Bible brails. You'll never see shit like that. But you'll see people like, you know, I broke my leg and I was down and out. And then so-and-so sent me the holy water in a ketchup packet and I prayed. And then I was cured, you know? And so that's definitely one really obvious narrative that you can see in, like, televangelism, evangelical and more, like, right forms of, say, like, Christianity that are, like, very obvious in our culture. Um, within Muslim spaces, you typically hear things like, you know, your disability is your jihad, which means like it's just something that you have to struggle with. And I even I even hate like using the word jihad because it has such a warped connotation, obviously, in like popular society, but essentially means that like this is your struggle that God has given you to deal with. Um, and so people will go and say to you, like, oh, you know, like, this is your jihad, that you're disabled. And I'm just like, that's not how that works, Sway. Like, that's really not how that works at all. Um, my jihad is not disability. Like, my struggle is, like, dismantle ableism as a part of, like, all forms of oppression. But you won't hear that. Necess- you won't hear that at all for the most part, and you certainly won't hear it when people are, even within Muslim spaces, when people are talking about, you know, like, our jihad is to, like, dismantle Islamophobia, or, like, you know, that we need to do, like, it never, it never gets to that point, and it it really, and it dovetails with this idea that, like, being queer is your jihad, too, you know, that, like, this is your profound struggle, and you just have to figure out how to suppress it, suppress your unnatural desires it becomes like way that that rhetoric works it becomes a thing of like this is your struggle so you have to go deal with it in the corner over there and this is not our problem as a collective community anymore you know and sadly that's not any different from what already exists in society and in religious media you know like I go to a seminary. I didn't I didn't walk with a cane for my master's degree. I stayed there to do my PhD and you had people like I had people who were just like what happened and I was just like, oh, I got tired of pretending like I didn't have problems. <laughs> I actually started going to the doctor as opposed to like ignoring it so I could, you know, do interfaith things and be visible for the sake of your marketing scheme. Sorry. <laughs> that that bursts your bubble all of a sudden. Yeah. Like, you wanted to know why I was never here before. Mm-hmm. Now you know. Now you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of inherently warped messaging around disability on like the ro- the religious rights. I even hate to put it that way, but it, you know, whatever. The religious right side of things, but even in the context of like liberation theology and like liberal religion, you have these people who will have like all affirming churches or whatever. And it's like, yeah, we welcome people with disabilities, but then there's no forethought as to like what that looks like. You know, you have all welcoming churches that don't have ASL interpretation, don't have like braille materials or whatever, you know. So it's just like you po- you position yourself as being all welcoming to be able to say that you're not like Bill O'Reilly over there. But then what does that actually mean in the context of being in a congregation together or being in a community together? Does that have some kind of lived praxis to it? Or is it just the ability to say, I mean, well, we don't kick anybody to the curb. And I'm like, that's nice. If only that were really true. It's not true. You know? (laughs) So there's a... There's a lot of different ways of looking at that messaging depending on where you position yourself. Definitely. Who's invisibilized by this whole process? Mm Mm-hmm. All right. So, um... This podcast is called Power, Not Pity, and uh, I just wanted to ask you, what is your disabled superpower? Oh my god. Um, Gotta think about that one? Yeah, a little (laughs) bit, because I've never, I feel like for me, like, coming into disability is still much a political process. Yeah. And so in my head, I'm just like, do I have a superpower? Oh, my God. I'm what? sure you do. <laughs> I'm so sure you do. Um, hmm. I think my superpower is being able to say no. Um, and that's something that I've never been good at even before I started, you know, living with disability. Mm. And, but especially now, I just realize I have so little patience (laughs) for things, you know. (laughs) And not just things, but, like, the way that people will be like, oh, do you want to do this thing? And, like, not give me any detail about, like, hey, so how long am I going to be standing? How far am I going to be walking? Um, You know... How long are we going to be out for? All of those things matter, you know, because I have a routine that helps me get through my day and come home with, like, not as much pain as I might have started the day with, you know. And all of those things are important, and I've just got learned to get a lot better at saying, no, sorry, not going to do this. (laughs) And that's really... I find that that's really jarring for folks, mm. especially being like a black femme, because the expectation is like, oh, you're going to save everybody. And I was yeah. like, you know what? I stopped saving people when I cast my shit vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh-huh. Like, I just decided after that, like, no, I did my duty. I'm not <laughs> saving any more people. <laughs> 
that's not up to me anymore. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Zainab. Oh, you're welcome. It was uh, great to get to know you. <laughs> so, is God inaccessible? I don't know. But what I do know is that the world is gravely inaccessible. And that goes for theology, too. What is a disabled person to do when they try to go to a church, but there are stairs at the entryway? Or if they were at a mosque without a seat? What is the meaning of claims that accepting everyone's ideal is a priority, but the needs of disabled people aren't even considered? One of the most significant things Zainab explained was that disability is often regarded as solely a disabled person's struggle. Unfortunately, life outside of religious spaces can look the same. So let's end there. Want to find the latest episode of Power Not Pity? I know you do. Look us up on iTunes, SoundCloud, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course at PowerNotPity.com. Got thoughts? Hit us up at PowerNotPity at gmail.com. Shout out to Zainab Sahar for sharing her story with me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Power, 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 not pity, pity, pity. Power, 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 not pity, 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 pity. Power, 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 not pity, power, power, not pity, pity, pity. Power, 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 not pity, pity, pity.